Good morning. On this, the third Sunday after Pentecost, June 21st, in the year of our Lord 2020, we gather together as the covenant community in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We gather our minds and hearts together in today's calling. O Lord, make us have perpetual love and reverence for your holy name, for you never fail to help and govern those whom you have set upon the sure foundation of your loving kindness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. During the Sundays after Pentecost this year, we will turn our attention to our ongoing study of John's first epistle. We've entitled this series, This is the Life. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 35, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. The believer is to participate in an active deconstruction of their life as they knew it, and in so doing, find and receive another life. What does this life look like? In John's first epistle, his subject seems to revolve around three themes, life, light, and love. So once again, we're going to consider a passage found in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. A reading from the first letter of St. John. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. 
The title of today's message is once again, The Gritty Subject of Sin. We began this uh, subject last Sunday, and we'll finish up with it today. And the fundamental premise is this. If we follow after Christ and are actively losing our life, the new life in Christ that replaces it expresses a truceless antagonism with sin by continually putting indwelling sin to death. Last Sunday we ended with a quote from John Owen. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now mortify and mortification are words we don't often use in everyday speech. It is even rare to hear these words uh, in church, and even rarer still to hear any preacher approach the subject of killing indwelling sin. But the word is used by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 and verse 13. This is the King James Version. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. The New International Version is helpful. For If you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So we can see then that the phrase to mortify means to put to death. The Bible presents two facts that seem somewhat contradictory, but nonetheless true, and as a result, they require more examination. The first fact is that you and I have been saved from the authority of condemning sin by Christ's death on the cross. And the second fact is that indwelling sin, which we might define as the animus to act out lawlessly, is still a possibility. We still possess the ability to sin. The penalty for sin is something that has been resolved, but almost counterintuitively, the desire to practice sin still remains. Believers still have the ability to sin. Now, that ability is not inevitable. We can resist it, but it occurs with an alarming regularity. John is writing against those who would deceive us, and he is encouraging us, on the contrary, to practice righteousness. I'm going to make this statement, and it is a controversial statement, but nonetheless I think it's true. Improvement is not repentance. 
Now, that doesn't mean that improvement is not a good thing. Improvement is a good thing. For example, if your child improves their grades at school, what parent isn't happy about that? Uh, but John seems to be telling us that when we're dealing with the practice of sin in our lives as professing believers, the proper response is repentance. Repentance can be defined as a change of mind and heart that issues forth in an about face, a 180-degree turn a new direction. Improvement is a more modern therapeutic concept. And improvement has its place. If a person is sick and we receive the news that they are improving, we are relieved. But when it comes to the deceptive nature of ongoing sin in a believer's life, the Bible prescribes repentance. So let me try to illustrate this difference. Uh, a couple goes to a counselor because their marriage is in trouble. Uh, the man has been inflicting physical violence on his wife. And the counselor walks them through many months of, let's say, non directive therapy. Uh, eventually, the man is able to say, well, things are so much better. I used to beat my wife every day. Now, I only beat her once a week. I have improved. Now, I'm sure that his wife feels differently. She cannot deny that an improvement has taken place but from her perspective, this is not a workable solution. Now today, if it comes to light in a counseling session that someone is being mistreated, a counselor is obligated to advise the victim to get away, to separate themselves from the abuser uh, for their own uh, physical and mental safety becomes the priority. In this case, the counselor does not wait for the violent spouse to improve or even repent. The only behavior modification that will suffice is a complete abandonment, a swearing off of the old behavior. And to put it in theological terms or in terms of the New Testament, the Bible has to put off the old man and he has to put on the new man in Christ Jesus. I believe that John is telling us not to coddle our own pet sins or what uh, the book of Hebrews describes in chapter 12 and verse 1 as the sin that so easily entangles. A Jesus gives the same advice. This is from Matthew chapter 18, verses 7 through 9. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, 
Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Now Jesus also gives similar advice to this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, uh, verses 29 through 30. Now I don't think that Jesus meant this to be taken literally. I don't think that he was promoting self-mutilation or bodily harm. But unfortunately, people have sometimes taken Jesus' advice literally. People have stuck pencils in their eyes. This is known as ocular self-mutilation. And even have castrated themselves uh, genital mutilation. I, I don't think that we'll see people in heaven who are missing parts of their body. So what is Jesus countenancing? What is he teaching? He's teaching that in our dealing with the sins of the flesh, we should be ruthless and brutally honest in our own self-assessment and take extreme measures when we deal with it. Again, from a biblical perspective, improvement is not synonymous with repentance. True repentance is the ultimate and only solution. So the first step is, as I said, not to coddle our pet sins. The book of Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13 says, He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Uh, Charles uh, Bridges comments on this verse, God and man each covers sin. God in free, unbounded grace. Man in shame and hypocrisy. But all these fig leaf coverings for man's nakedness only show his determination to hold his sin and his pride of heart, which would rather hide it from God itself than to receive mercy as a self-condemned sinner. Now, one of the solutions proffered in this passage is to suggest that John is talking about the practice of habitual or continuing or ongoing sin in the life of a believer. So the English Standard Version translation of verse 9 of 1 John chapter 3 uh, says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Now here's a, an explanation by Thomas Constable. He says, it seems to me that those teachers who say that this verse means that true believers will not practice sin habitually are either naive or have very little appreciation of the depth of human depravity. Any sensitive Christian 
who is honestly trying to live a holy life will admit that he or she sins repeatedly every day. Every Christian is guilty of sins of omission, of motivation, actions, and responses that often arise from unconscious pride and selfishness, and of ignorance as well as deliberate sins. Genuine Christians have even confessed to habitually practicing gross sins for extended periods of time. So he concludes, every Christian is a habitual sinner, and we will be until the Lord takes us to glory. So if we have been born of God through what John refers to as a divine insemination, we should recognize that acting on indwelling sin, the impulse to sin, is not in accordance with our true nature. So John is clear to lay out some explicit reasons why this is true, and I want to share those with you now quickly. First of all, uh, John says we should be mortifying sin because we need to be ready for the coming of the Lord. If we have this hope, the hope of Christ's second coming, then you and I as believers should be actively engaged in the ongoing acts of preparation and purification. Uh, T.D. Jake says, get ready, get ready, get ready. And so John tells us this in verse 3 of chapter 3 of 1 John, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The truth is that you and I need to be ready for the coming of the Lord. Uh, secondly, John is reminding us of the true nature of sin. He says, all sin is lawlessness in verse 4. Christ came to save us from the law. This is true. But he also came to write the law and what the Old Testament uh, defines as on our new hearts of flesh, that God would take away our stony hearts and write the law on new hearts of flesh. Because we have been delivered from condemning sin, God has the right to expect that his children will conduct themselves with a higher level of compliance. If we persistently exhibit no desire to mortify, to put to death indwelling sin, it may indicate that we are either a counterfeit or a hypocrite. Thirdly, John is reminding us that ongoing sin and its consequences may betray the fact that we are deceived. He says in verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Apparently, there were people among those to whom John was writing who felt that unrepented sin 
in a believer's life was not a big deal. John is saying how wrong they are. They are being ruled by a spirit of deception. As Owen suggested, if we're not about the business of killing sin, it will turn violently against us and it will kill us. Fourthly, John is reminding us that the presence of indwelling sin that is not resisted makes us more susceptible to Satan and his influences and his impulses. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So this should be naturally repulsive to the born of God believer because Jesus' express purpose for coming was to destroy the works of the devil. Unceasing resistance then must be our approach. A kind of behind-the-lines sabotage. This is the only approved biblical method for winning the war. And fifthly, John seems to be emphasizing that you and I have an obligation to provide some evidence in how we live to demonstrate that we, in fact, have actually been born of God. He says in verse 10 of chapter 3, by this it is evident who are the children of God. Uh, the New International Version says, this is how we know who the children of God are. So here's the question that we have to ask, and only you can answer it for yourself. If you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to produce a conviction? Now in 2 Tim Timothy chapter 3, and verse 19, Paul tells Timothy, that even in spite of Hymenaeus and Philetus wandering away from the truth, the firm foundation of God stands. God's economy, his household, his kingdom is built on two truths, Paul tells Timothy, that are sealed with this inscription. What is that inscription? First of all, the Lord knows those who are his. That is, frankly and very plainly, that is the doctrine of election. The Lord knows those who are his. And the second part of the inscription is that those who claim to be the recipients of this elective purpose of God are obligated to turn away from wickedness. There are two fundamental building blocks of the church of Jesus Christ. First of all, Jesus paid it all, in the words of the song. And secondly, all to him I owe. So what then is the prescribed course of treatment? It is, once again, repentance, or as Paul recommended in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, a daily dying. The secret is found 
I believe in this passage, what this passage really centers on is found in verse 6 of chapter 3 of 1 John. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. We live with Jesus. When we come home at the end of the day and we sit down with Jesus and he says to us, he asks us, so what did you do today? That constant abiding will produce in the believer's life a distaste, a repulsion for continuing in sin. The truth is that spending quality time in the presence of Jesus helps us to see him more clearly and to know him better. How could it be otherwise? So today, if hearing this creates genuine sorrow in your heart and soul as a believer, we call this a conviction, uh, what are we to do? We are to turn to God in repentance. And hear this encouragement from John Piper. If you are fighting sin, you are alive. Take heart. But if sin holds sway unopposed, you are dead. No matter how lively this sin makes you feel. Take heart, embattled saint. We are to put up a fight. We are, in the words of the Holy Bible, we are to fight the good fight of faith. Again, Paul's uh, advice to us in Romans 8.13, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. We are to be engaged in the battle to kill indwelling sin, and it's not by might nor power, but it is by God's Holy Spirit. We are supposed to be married to Jesus. We're not just to shack up with him. We are supposed to abide with him. And we have to, if we're going to live with Jesus, we have to make room in our heart for the Holy Spirit to work. Words of the Apostle Peter to the crowd on the day of Pentecost was save yourselves from this crooked generation. And we do that by abiding constantly in the presence of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Father, that you sent the Holy Spirit to continue the work that you began and that the Holy Spirit is ever-present, ever-living within us. Because we are in Christ, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence. And we pray that you would empower each believer today and their resistance to sin. Fill them with your Holy Spirit so that the power of indwelling sin will be reduced 
and mortified. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.